it was a great moment. <laughs> you know, I'm like getting a tear in my eye, but it was like a turning point in my life, you know. I guess every kid has to do that, make that stand. God help me if I hadn't done that. Seriously. And welcome back to Dark Side of the Ring Unheard, the podcast from the Hit Vice TV series where we plunge into the Dark Side archives to uncover real revelations, or at least we think they're real, from some of pro wrestling's most storied characters, which have until now never been broadcast. I'm Jack Encarnacio from the Lapsed Fan Wrestling Podcast and joined by my Lapsed Fan co-host, J.P. Sorrow, as well as, of course, Dark Side of the Ring's executive producer and co-creator, Evan Husney. Uh, we're also joined this time around by Jason Eisner, um, who is a fellow co-creator with Evan of Dark Side of the Ring and a uh, director of the show as well. And Evan, we're talking about Kevin Von Erich on this episode, the last of the surviving Von Erich wrestling clan of Dallas, Texas. The family, of course, depicted in the film The Iron Claw, which was released in theaters nationwide during Christmas time. Uh, Kevin sat for Dark Side cameras for season one of the series and the setting was unique, Kauai, Hawaii, where he had moved his family and two sons away from Dallas. And Evan, we're excited to not only have you on Dark Side Unheard today to recollect the experience of talking to Kevin Von Erich in that setting, in that atmosphere, but also uh, Jason as well to talk about this. Um, welcome to both of you. And Evan, memories of the trip to Hawaii uh, to get the story of the Von Erich brother who survived, of course, a litany of loss and tragedy. Yeah, it's hard to believe that it's been six years since we were uh, in Hawaii with Kevin Von Erich and his family. <clears throat> and it was an amazing experience. It was a magical experience, actually, because we had been on the road for so long, traveling all up and down these kind of very boring and bland cities across America that all look, you know, uniform and the same. And the opportunity to actually you know, fly all the way out to Kauai to this kind of magical place where it's, you know, tropical and... You know, there's a there's a intermittent rain thunderstorms and amazing vegetation and things like that. It was it was such an, a breath of fresh air for us when we had just been traveling nonstop. And we initially thought we would just talk to Kevin Von Erich uh, for the Gino Hernandez episode, which was also part of our season one, uh, because he knew Gino, of course, from world class championship wrestling. But once we decided, like, man, I know the Von Erich story has been covered before previous but this is such a fascinating, unbelievable, truth is stranger than fiction, like cosmically tragic story. But, you know, what if we actually did it for the show? And so uh, we brought the idea up to Kevin and he was totally game for it. And we went out there and um, I'm so glad that we did because the time we spent with him and his family um, is just one of those indelible experiences uh, with making the show. Maybe the highlight of making the show because it was so, um, man, I mean, just, you know, getting his story from him. Uh, listening to it firsthand and forging a relationship with Kevin and his sons uh, is something that I think we hold on to very dearly uh, still to this day. And uh, Jason, you know, you were with me on this. And what do you remember from this? Because it was a pretty amazing experience. Yeah, it already kind of feels like a lifetime ago. But I remember, like you said, like we were on the road for so long. And by the time we got to Kauai, it was like in the middle of the night. 
And we had to drive, I think, from the airport, like 45 minutes to the Airbnb we were staying. And I remember because that's where they shot Jurassic Park. And I remember us driving down these like windy roads in the rain. And it felt like those nighttime scenes from (laughs) Jurassic Park. Pitch black, too. And it was. Yeah. And we woke up to the sounds of like roosters, like outside our uh, Airbnb. And I remember going outside and just being awestruck by how beautiful the surroundings were because we couldn't see it at night but in the morning it was just unbelievable and um, I remember us looking for the Von Erich family's like compound and then there was like a rock that like said Atkinson like their actual real last name and uh, and then going onto the property and just like there being so many ducks and goats and we were greeted by his two sons, Ross and Marshall, and they were so nice. And they brought us into the home and we didn't know where Kevin was. And I remember we're like sitting on the couch, just like talking to Ross and Mar- Marshall about wrestling. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Kevin just did a, like a front flip onto the couch and landed right beside <laughs> you. <laughs> That's what happened. That is a hundred and barefoot, of course. And, yeah. and just to just to paint this portrait, it was like, you know, doors open, family members coming in and out, ducks coming in and out. You know, it was just this communal. Yeah. When he when he says commune, it really I mean, his entire extended family, like 18 family members plus live on this plot of land. And so it was just like, you know, open doors to everybody. Where's Kevin? And then suddenly he just somersaults like right next to me. It's like, oh, gee, Evan, what you doing over there? You know, whatever. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was amazing. Like, where am I? And you know, the jet lag and everything. It was amazing. It's it's fascinating th- that setting, and it's wonderful that you guys got the chance to capture that because since then the Von Erichs have actually Kevin and his family have actually since moved back uh, to Texas, um, in and around San Antonio. I'm not quite sure what came of this this beautiful Kauai property, but it was so fascinating, JP, because the episode kind of frames it up as if, you know, Kevin has finally, you know, kind of gotten that physical as well as emotional distance from all the the tragedy that the Von Erich family went through by going to, to Hawaii. And then they all returned to Texas. I thought that was such an unexpected twist, but we, we've spent a lot of time on the lapsed van, to put it lightly, uh, covering this subject matter, uh, uh, Holt McCallany, who plays Fritz von Erich in the film, uh, in an interview acknowledged that he listened to the entire series that we did on the lamentable tragedy of world class to get prepared for the, the Fritz headspace, so to speak. And all the hours we've spent talking about this subject, kind of assigning culpability along the way, making judgments. Uh, what did you think of, you know, Kevin and, and him telling his story here? Well, it's always great to hear him. Like, I, I enjoyed hearing, uh, uh, hearing from Kevin and, uh, you know, and and honestly, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's just a, it's a, it's such a tragic, tragic story. And Jack was there. He knows the, uh, the, the amount of emotion that I went through just learning about, about them and, and, and the brothers and just how they suffered. We all know the, the end result, but I give him all the credit in the world for, for having been able to move on having lost your entire, you know, like he says, like I went from being the oldest brother to not being a brother at all. Like that's, well, it's heartbreaking, but I, I guess I was just surprised that he, he was surprised that it still affected him. Like, how could it not? If you think about that stuff, how can it not bring up the worst and the darkest emotions that you ever went through? You know, when I think about this experience of being there and making this episode, uh, on one end, the first thing I think of is the landscape and how peaceful and, 
you know, picturesque and, and, and beautiful it was. But then I also think about, you know, it was not easy for us to capture his story or to get it out of him. You know, it was something we realized um, when, when we first got there that we knew this was going to be challenging. There was like, uh, and, and, and I think he was nervous. There was a nervousness about him and kind of all over the place and very defensive, I will say, that when we showed up, I think his experience with cameras and with uh, documentarians or anyone who's going to capture the story another time is that, um, you know, he feels very defensive of his father and he, he assumes that people like us are there to judge his father. And so everything in that first day not everything, but a majority of the things we were getting was through the lens uh, of him like being defensive about his dad, you know? And so it took a while for us to break down that wall and to really be like, um, to, to really kind of cornering his sons, which we did, Ross and Marshall, we kind of put them off to the side and kind of was like, guys, can you help us, <laughs> you know? And uh, they sort of understood what we wanted to do and helped us to sort of work with us sitting next to us next to us as we're operating the camera and, you know, asking the questions, sort of helping. And you hear it sometimes in the episode where you'll hear one of his sons saying, hey, dad, tell that story about where, you know, granddad pointed the gun at you, you know, whatever. A question that's easier for him to ask than it is for me to ask, you know, and it really worked. And Jason, do you remember also what we did? What was a, a thing? That I remembered like we were worried at the end of the first day when we wrapped shooting, you and I had a talk and, um, we were worried, like, are we even going to be able to leave here with an episode? Like, are we going to be able to yeah. get the story? And then when we showed up the next day, the first thing we did is we showed Kevin and his sons a little trailer that I cut together for the Bruiser Brody episode that we had just finished. And we showed, I showed it to him on my phone and Kevin, he watched it. And right after he's like, that's awesome. That it, it reminds me of the thin blue line. The Errol Morris film. I couldn't believe he said that. I could not believe yeah, he said that. Yeah, that documentary is like really what inspired a lot of our choices for Dark Side of the Ring and, and help, helped us kind of frame the Bruiser Brody story. And so when he got the main inspiration, our main reference, I, I couldn't believe it. And his sons loved it too. And they thought it was so cool. And once he saw that, he got what we were trying to do. And it was like once we got him like sat down with him and had Ross sitting right beside us, we like got the whole episode and that interview on that second day. Yeah. And to point out too, just real quick, you know, of course, the the story that's chronicled in the Thin Blue Line by Earl Morris is a, you know, story of a uh, murder of a police officer, um, a hit and run that also w took place in Dallas. So it's not super surprising that he'd be familiar with that obviously growing up in Dallas. Um, but then sort of showing him that, him seeing footage of, you know, Frank Bruiser Brody brought back a lot of sort of, you know, melancholy and, and, and feelings and emotions and uh, nostalgia about that time. And it just helped kind of put him in that frame. And I think then he understood what we wanted to do and we started rolling and asking questions. But then, of course, once we had to d talk about the more, the more difficult stuff, the passings of his family members, he only had like, you know, maybe 20 minutes at a time, 30 minutes at a time in the tank before he'd have to refill it. And he would just go wa wander out into nature and sort of fill up his batteries and take it all in and then come back um, and then get ready. He's also in a tremendous amount of just like general wrestler pain as well, too, 
uh, from sitting in chairs and things. So it was a combination of the emotion of that and also the just the physical pain that he, I think he's still in. Um, yeah, it was a heavy, heavy, heavy experience. I remember too, um, I just remembered when we sat down with him on that second day, I was wearing a, a Ribera Steakhouse shirt <laughs> and his Mark. sons like, you know, loved it. But Kevin, when he looked at it, it like triggered him. And he was like, that is where my brother David had his last meal before he died. I was at the Ribera. That's right. That's in Japan. right. That's right. Yeah. 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 That's right. And so there was a lot of that and any opportunity, the last thing I'll say, then we'll get the show on the road. But the last thing too is like, uh, I, I do remember any time that Kevin needed some time away from the cameras, that was like my time to run into the next room and scan as many photographs as I could uh, because there was an overwhelming amount of photographs uh, from the family archives, which I'm sure you guys have seen in that like Von Eric that we, we talked about the other day, that one Von Eric book, you know, um, and uh, they have all those original photographs. And so I'm scanning all of them as fast as I can, just because we only had so much, we did very limited time with him. Um, but we, we, we walked away feeling like uh, it was an incredible experience. Um, I remember like the whole trip ended with us like sitting by his waterfall. There's a couple shots where you see that in the episode where he, he has a waterfall on his property. It's very picturesque, very beautiful. And uh, he and I were just smoking cigars you know, talking about how great ZZ Top is, <laughs> you know, it was like, and it was just like, this is amazing. You know, it's just amazing. It was like, it was like, I could never dream that that would be some a situation that I would be in, you know? Well, the off chance that folks aren't familiar, um, just very, very quickly. Um, Fritz von Erich was a, a huge professional wrestling star through the fifties and sixties, uh, and, and through the seventies and eighties after acquiring uh, a wrestling territory called world-class wrestling out of Dallas, Texas, where he was from real name, Jack Atkinson. Um, a product of Jewett, Texas, a small town in Texas, uh, Old West sort of upbringing for, for old Fritz. And his sons just befell just a litany of tragedy. His, his firstborn um, was electrocuted and drowned in a puddle um, at the age of six. Um, David, who we mentioned, died uh, at a Tokyo hotel uh, from enteritis at the age of 25. And his sons, Mike, Chris, and Kerry, Kerry Von Erich being really the biggest star of the bunch in terms of international wrestling stardom, was formerly with the WWF and was an NWA heavyweight champion, uh, all died by suicide. Um, just an unbelievable litany of things that uh, Kevin Von Erich has countenanced and, and been through. And we're going to try to you know select some bites that didn't make uh, the episode that, that might further illuminate what it was like to, to be a Von Erich during the course of all this, as, as told by Kevin. And we're going to start with a story he told that was very much a formative experience, uh, at least that's how he portrayed it, um, where he's having trouble with a bully at school. And the way to deal with that bully is weighing on him because he thinks this bully really has him outmatched. And, and the way his parents sort of guide him to dealing with this, uh, he actually gets emotional at the end just telling the story about where he was at as a child. But growing up Von Eric, I suppose this is uh, where we should start. My childhood? Well, I was an older brother, and so it was a lot of fighting. So I remember junior high as being rough like getting beat up every day, you're rough. If you didn't insult me, it was one of my brothers. And I didn't get in. Well, it was a lot of fighting. I lost a lot. Let me put it that way. I never won. I lost a lot of fights. If I tried to use, if I, uh, this one kid kept beating me up. Like, and so one day I brought a rock, and he beat me with the rock. So I thought, why can't I beat this guy? Eighth, ninth grade. And uh, I was... You know, I was not myself, and I guess my mother noticed it. 
And I never would have admitted to my dad that I had a weakness, you know, that I was afraid of somebody. I was. I was scared of this guy. He, I knew he could kick my butt. He was uh, such a badass, you know, so I couldn't have beat him. And so my dad said, son, tell me about this uh, this, this guy, this Wilson guy. I said, well, dad, uh, I'm going to fight him. I'm just thinking when. He said, well, you're scared of him, aren't you? I said, yeah. And he said, well, he said, well, you just keep punching. You hit him in the face and keep him going. Man. <laughs> It was a great moment. <laughs> you know, I'm like getting a tear in my eye, but it was like a turning point in my life, you know. I guess every kid has to do that, make that stand. God help me if I hadn't done that. Seriously. I thought it was so telling, Jason, when he puts his finger on, you know, the, the divergence between how his mom, Doris, thought he should handle it. Uh, she's portrayed, by the way, uh, portrayed, I should say, uh, in the film uh, as well, the, the Iron Claw, and, and, her, and his father, and how he really never would have admitted to being intimidated uh, by, by somebody in middle school. And, and just the way he sets up, you know, just the, the different ways his parents approach things, I think might set things up for a lot of the other challenges that the family experienced that you guys get into. Yeah. Like hearing that, like I, I recall like seeing interviews uh, with Fritz um, where he really wanted to instill these like tough values with his sons. And he would always say, I didn't want to raise any sissies. <laughs> and uh, that's right. Yeah. That's what he said. Yeah. yeah. And um, I've never had, like, I've definitely had bullies like growing up. Um, I never had quite like a moment like that. Uh but it does like definitely seem like something that yeah it really affected Kevin and stayed with him and um, oh my god yeah yeah well to me it's it's kind of this thing where it's 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 the formation of a sort of snowball effect that is taking place with the with the with the kids it's this idea of you know you can take these things you you can take this into your own hands you know and be tough. And be a man and try to fix the situation, you know, and it has, you know, obviously as the, the, the Von Erich tragedy plays out, it's a slippery slope because as we know, um, it, 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 there is no room since he, since he's saying basically what Jason said that he doesn't want to raise sissies, it's kind of shutting out emotion from the world and it's leading totally with, you know, physicality, aggression, masculinity, and it's leaving no room for what later would become you know, grief and those types of things. And it is kind of a recipe for disaster in, in a lot of ways, which, which we find out is that you know, these kids really had no outlet to express probably the grief that they were truly going through um, you know, with all the passings of their siblings. And, um, and so you can see where this would form at a very young age, this idea of you know, molding somebody into the image that you want them to be in. But it might not necessarily be the image that nature, you know, designs us. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the the concluding thought there of, you know, God help me if I hadn't stood up for myself, you know, that, that I thought was so telling, you know, because he's sort of, he, it's not an option for Kevin, you know, and, and he's grateful that his, his father nudged him to stand up for himself. And he seems to think that that's, you know, a very important part of growing up to hear him tell it. But I don't know, I thought it was so, so revealing that he actually got choked up just telling the story about how uh, he stood up to a bully because, you know, it's growing up Von Eric, we're starting to see it develop. And part of that, of course, is going to the matches and watching your dad uh, engaged in life and death struggles in the wrestling ring, or at least they're led to believe something a lot of people probably don't know. 
about wrestling families, and there are many of them from the Von Erichs to the Funks to the Hearts, is that you don't necessarily let the little ones in on the fact that it's not real right away. Um, a, a key way to teach them the magic of wrestling is to let them believe it's real for as long as they can so that they can understand what kind of experience they're supposed to be recreating when they become pro wrestlers uh, for you know potential believers. And so young Kevin is going to the matches and he's watching his father battle these people and he thinks these people are really out uh, to hurt his dad or at least to you know be involved in a match where they're trying to beat him and that involves you know some degree of... Um, of a physical attack. And so one of the matches that Kevin recalls seeing as a boy was his father, Fritz von Erich, against Bobo Brazil, who was a big-time star uh, in the business throughout the 60s and the 70s for the most part uh, across the United States and the, the most prominent territories. And Kevin's walking around backstage, you know, having access as a member of the family, and he's trying to show off to <laughs> Bobo uh, this, this horse kick that he <laughs> learned, you know, where you basically a kicking technique where he's kicking the wall. And... They had some fun with this, did Fritz and Bobo, because by the time it was over, uh, Kevin is actually fearful that he had handed his father defeat. So uh, he said, show me that again. And so all the wrestlers are really putting me over for a horse kick. You know, I said, we're about to break that wall, boy. I said, yeah, I better find another wall. You know, I was really into that. And uh, So anyway, here comes the match. And Dad and Bobo are wrestling, and Dad's about to win, and Bobo horse kicks my dad. My dad flies back, hit his head on the ring, and he's beat. From a horse kick, and uh, 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 I couldn't believe it. Dad came to the back, and uh, I mean, I went running the dressing room, and I heard the door open. I said, I hate you, Mr. Brazil. I hate you. I hate you. I'm never going to tell you ever. I'm never going to talk to you again, Mr. Brazil. I hate you. <laughs> and Mr. Brazil. All the were laughing their butts off, you know, and but I was, because I, I was, I don't care if they're laughing. I hate you, and I'm Dad, I'm sorry. He said, who taught him that? It was me. It was me, Dad. It was me. Oh, man. They worked me. It was funny, but it was tough to be a little boy. Think about that, JP. Like, you think your dad, you know, was, was whooped in the ring because of something you showed his opponent in the dressing room, and they're not telling Kevin that it's not real. They're not quite going there yet. It's it's a weird way to live, grow up. Yeah. Hey, Dad, Dad, someone said that, what you, that you're a phony, that what you do isn't real. Well, son, let me tell you about what's real. And one thing, too, just that touching on that as well, it's like imagining an impressionable young Kevin Von Erich, you know, growing up watching your dad as this heel, this sort of, you know, almost Nazi-ish, you know, character who's, you know, super powerful and tough and, you know, unbeatable. It's like that's another ingredient in this story, too, because it forms a very interesting bond with your father where I'm sure that if you're watching him be so tough and powerful, it's like you also at that moment with like punching out the bully or Fritz passing that on to him. It's like you want to impress your father. You know, you want to uh, get that, earn that respect from him, you know, because you're seeing a crowd of people, you know, gather in front of him to be sort of, I know he's a heel, but they're at least, you know, gathering in front of him to see him compete. And I think there's got to be an effect that that would have an, uh, on you um, super young, that you know, you're going to want to try and impress your dad as much as possible. And interestingly, while he was a heel on a national basis and an international basis with that the Nazi gimmick you talked about, his name's Jack Atkinson, but he became Fritz von Erich to be a German heel. When it came to Dallas, when it came to his hometown, people knew him as Jack Atkinson, and while he was still went by Fritz von Erich in the ring, he was a hero uh, in his backyard, which presumably is the context that Kevin saw him in. I'm not sure what city that took place in, but there's that, too, that he saw his dad as a hero, not necessarily someone that exclusively people wanted to uh, to kill. But uh, Jason, you were going to say? 
Oh, I was just going to say, like, it reminded me of, uh, like, Stu Hart, who I think uh, gave Fritz uh, that uh, that Nazi gimmick. Um, he would also work his kids as well, too. And Brett would share these stories with us about how he thought his dad was in in real peril in the ring and told us a great story about um, a match that Stu had with Abdullah the Butcher. And, and uh, Abdullah was biting onto Stu's face. And Brett got so upset and emotionally, like, hopped the rail and kicked Abdullah in the, in the ass. And then Abdullah turned around with Stu's blood all over his face and like growled at him and uh, they worked him, you know? And so maybe that's a little something that like Fritz (laughs) took from Stu. Yeah. Stu readily allowed his children to believe that the Cuban assassin was going to bomb their house and pile drive, you know, uh, Helen Hart on the fucking freeway, you know? So like that was a thing of this generation of, of, of wrestlers was let's work the goddamn kids too. Like we got to work the kids. Did Kevin Von Erich think that his dad was a Nazi? That that's where the rubber meets the road, right? right? Like, you know, okay. You don't want you to see your dad get, get beat up, but do you think he's a Nazi is with the same time. Like that's just the weird thing because, uh, yeah, I don't, I, that's where, uh, especially mainly for a heel wrestler, is that an issue? I had a feeling it kind of at that age, like it went over his head a little bit um, that he just knew his dad was like the the heel or like, or at times actually he didn't even know why his dad like was getting booed at the matches. That's right. In the episode, he talks about that. He talks about how like, you know, even though the crowd was booing, he was cheering, you know, and it, it didn't bother him. It didn't, you know, he didn't pay no attention to it. So further on the growing up Von Eric front, I guess a little less of a foreboding story, just, you know, you got to think about this compound of these, you know, Friday night lights type superstar kids who just are just, you know, recreating like old Texas boys do. And I thought Kevin just, just painted it beautifully talking about, first of all, how many gallons of milk these uh, Texas Broncos would, would consume growing up on the, on the compound. And it just, and just a story about, you know, the brotherly bond that, that formed, uh, amongst the Von Erich boys. Yeah, Von Erich drank uh, 36 gallons of milk a week and chocolate milk. Got that? <laughs> 36 wow. gallons a week. We mostly made it chocolate milk. And they were going to write a book one time and call it 36 gallons a week, but that's really how much we drank. And they truck it out to our house. And it was, uh, in fact, we jumped on the back of that truck one time, and all three of us, or Carrie jumped on it, and so... Dave jumped on there to save Carrie, and then I had to run it down and jump on it because my brothers were on there. So then we couldn't find a slow enough time to jump off. So we're holding on to the door to the refrigerator, and along comes the highway. We look, the sea's speeding up to get on the highway, and so I had to take Carrie by the neck and just throw him. <laughs> then Dave jumped, and then I jumped, and because he was speeding up to get on that highway, and it was about to get bad, so... Well, we took a beating off of that ground. At least we lived, though. I do not remember that at all. You know, I I knew I probably had asked a question about something entirely unrelated to the story and probably thinking, like, okay, how am I going to get this back on track? Nah, I don't either. But, yeah, amazing. I mean, yeah, these guys were, you know, um, strong boys, you know. They were just brothers, you know. I mean, this is before they were wrestlers for the most part. How can you drink? 36 gallons of milk a week well like, among them but I mean, no, no no i know that but none, nonetheless you know i mean listen i love a good you know cold glass of milk with the 
peanut butter and jelly or some chocolate chip cookies. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not going through 36 gallons of milk. Yeah. And this was back when, you know, milk was supposed to be the, you know, the, the linchpin of a healthy diet, you know, and now people like avoid milk like the plague. It's hilarious. So that's kind of what it's like to just frolic. It's, it's depicted in Iron Claw too, you know, them driving around in the truck and just being kids, you know, and that's a part of a lot of these kids, they didn't live very long strictly David, Mike, you know, they died very young. And, and the only glimpse we got of who they are besides wrestlers are these early formative years where, you know, it's not quite feasible to put them in the ring. And they're kind of discovering who they are and, and doing things that aren't, you know, strictly defined by the, the demands of being pro wrestlers. And maybe we should just, because we've, we've mentioned it a few times, maybe we should, we should bring up the Iron Claw. Um, not that anyone in particular is interested in, you know, necessarily in what I think of the movie or whatever. And, and, you know, cause we will get into it as we talk with some of these other bites that didn't make air and maybe where the Von Erich story starts to diverge from the, you know, iron claw narrative, uh, that's depicted in the film, you know, cause one thing that's pretty important too, is like, you know, I, I think Kevin Von Erich sums it up pretty well, um, in a recent interview that he's done, uh, about the iron claw. And I think he's being very kind and supportive of, you know, the filmmakers, uh, but he is reminding audiences that The Iron Claw is a fictional film and it does not represent, you know, the truth of the Von Erichs or the story of the Von Erichs. And, you know, I tend to agree, too. And for me, it was a very difficult uh, experience to watch the movie uh, because, you know, uh, you know, and, and I'm probably the, you know, zero point or point zero 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 one percent of the audience who is going to take issue uh, to such an extent with the movie based based purely upon how much I know about the story, how close I am to it uh, by proximity. And, you know, and it's not like the, you, it's not just that you guys know a lot about the story. You actually went ahead and made a very entertaining, you know, 45 minute piece of entertainment about it. You know, it's, it's sure. Yeah, sure. But even knowing, though, that our version, quote unquote, of the story is still a very, you know, um, you know, compared to you guys, you know, I've done 900 hours on the subject, but it's, um, but it's, I thought it was a thousand. Is it only 900? <laughs> oh. No, but it's, it's, you know, ours, it, you know, even being sort of for, you know, there's probably a crude way to explain more of a cliff notes version of, you know, really the breadth of this, you know, incredibly tragic, incredibly cinematic in my point of view story that, um, you know, is, is, is ripe for a movie. And, uh, I guess my only, you know, major criticism that I really have of it was just that I felt that, um, you know, that, that old adage, and we've said it before uh, on, on this week's episode of unheard and, 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 and other ones is that, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the story that exemplifies that more than any other. The fact that you have, you know, a family, six brothers and five of them pass away, uh, it, some of which in quick succession is almost impossible to believe because if you were to write a script about that, you could just hear someone being like, oh, well, I don't know, that might be too much or whatever. But that's kind of exactly what the Iron Claw does is it sort of reduces um, and it, it condenses like many biopics do by nature of their runtime into starting to editorialize and fictionalize certain things for the convenience of the filmmakers and the storytellers. And then you start to really reduce the film down to fiction and it, it doesn't really ring as true as it might, um, you know, and, and what it really is, you know, is this cosmically tragic, you can't write it, uh, human story. And I feel like to bring it back to our episode, and I think the main theme of, um, 
themes that were important to us in making the story and and w when we immersed ourselves in it and something that we were really paying attention to and while editing it and also doing the interviews is that the Von Erich brothers grew up in the spotlight. You know, Fritz Von Erich was a, a staple on television as a wrestler and everybody in the area in the local area knew who he was. And then when he had sons and they had, you know, athletic competition wins or they were featured on television, everybody in the town knew about it. People knew that who these kids were. And so they grew up as almost television personas and knowing and something that the film doesn't really do is it really doesn't illustrate how famous and well-known and beloved they were in their region. And so that's like the whole stakes of the story is uh, of keeping the, up those appearances. Yeah. Keeping up the appearances. And I think of Fritz von Erich being a, somebody who uh, tried his hard, even when he's, you know, he's working his boys in the locker room and he's putting his kids on television. He's trying to mold reality into the shape of fictional wrestling, you know, and as real, real, real life shit happens, that gets away from you and you can't control it. And then it's 10 steps ahead of you and you keep trying to control it. And uh, to me, that was always the uh, most fascinating and tragic part of the story. And unfortunately, with Iron Claw, it, it seemed to be that was the that was not the themes that they honed in on with telling that story. And I can see why, um, you know, uh, from just what I can glean from the interviews with Kevin, not that I've talked to him about it or anything, it's just that, you know, that it, it is unfortunately a, a very fictionalized kind of fan fiction version of the Von Erich story. You don't feel the pressure of the spotlight that they were under. And I feel like it avoids a lot of the reasons that some of the boys like lost their lives. And for that, I think it kind of takes away their humanity by doing that. I think one of the things that, that this film didn't take advantage of too, is that not only all the stuff you're mentioning, but also the fact that after these tragedies, he still tried to attempt to, to, to market off of these and use these to get to, 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 for television. Sell tickets. And exactly sell tickets and stuff. And, and, and I got to, you know, especially I got to stop you there because that is exactly what the next bite is about. Um, and this is something that isn't really reflected either uh, in the film. It, you know, David dies, uh, passes away and in, 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 on a wrestling tour of Japan is mentioned. Suddenly, Jackie had died when he was a baby. That was, you know, a tragic accident, it, of course, unexpected. But it, it was a different sort of death than, you know, a full grown son dying while wrestling. And you would think that when, when something waylays a family like that, you would clear the decks, take as much time as you feel like you need, cancel all the dates on the calendar as far as your wrestling promotion and move on with it. But it, it charged harder than ever. And what Kevin found out and what he talked to you guys about is he just was, he just was not allowed based on all the obligations the Von Erichs had to make lucrative wrestling dates after David died, the time he really felt he needed uh, to take in what had happened. Every show was packed, but man, it took it out of us because I just could not direct my attention to that guy. We, you know, we used to write, because the kids that I collected did, we'd always have a marquee, and we'd write on the turnbuckles, hi, Kerry, hi, Dave, you know. And, or, He's talking about how they'd get a Sharpie and write messages to each other on the turnbuckle pads of the ring. You know, you, you would come wow. to the ring later and see, hi, David, from Kevin or something. Or, you know, I bet you're, you know, some joke. You know, and... uh 
And then I'd go to towns and I'd be on there, you know, and I'd see stuff. Like, that reminded me of it. It was really hard to do. So we got, but it was, it was business, and the family needed it, and we had to do it. My dad was like getting an unbelievable amount of money for Japan, or a booking fee for us to go over. And we couldn't cancel those tours. My dad would lose too much money on contract. We had to man up and do it. It was tough. You can, you can still hear it, Evan, in his voice. Yeah, that's that's exactly what you were talking about too, Jason, about the pressure. It's like, and I do remember that too, a lot of what uh, Kevin drilled down the interview, Jim Cornette, others we talked to for the episode was just like how stringent he was about making the dates no matter what, that the kids were booked on these dates and the livelihood of world-class championship wrestling, the family business, you know, relied upon the kids making the bookings and not uh, under all any circumstance whatsoever. And sometimes these trips would be very extreme. Sometimes they got to get over, you know, to Japan, you know, on a, on a like on a very short notice or they got to go over to Florida or whatever. All and while, so, by the way, quickly, just a quick interjection, which the film really skips as well. Iron Claw. Most of them have drug problems. Yeah, the, the film doesn't speak to that much. I mean, they show Mike overdosing, but there's drug problems that are really bereft and taking hold with these kids at the same time they're processing this grief. Yes, exactly. And and, it, and it's that pressure to not let your dad down. You know, that's that like, you know, they have this honor um, and they, do, they don't want to betray him in any way. Um, so they have to keep up the appearance. And um, that's a lot of responsibility you know, to put on somebody or that someone takes upon themselves, you know, uh, for the duty of family. Yeah, Jason, just hearing Kevin's voice recollecting, this is all the way back in 84 that he's talking about when David died and they had to get right back on the road. I was, I was taken by, you know, I read, I read the transcript so I could see, you know, on the, on, on the page what he was saying, but to hear like the timber in his voice, I mean, he really recalls that pain in a pointed way that I don't think you appreciate unless you're sitting across the room from him and hearing him uh, you know, recollect these emotions. I've heard him talk about like the grieving process and a lot of people, that's what they want to talk to him about is like, how does he deal with the the grief of all this? And he said, it doesn't get any better. It just, it gets worse, but you have to like figure out a way to get through it. And uh, you can tell like, uh, and he would say like, I, he could remember these moments like they were yesterday, that they're still like just so part of his life and his memory. And um, I remembered something that like hit us r- really hard at one point in the making of it. I think Evan, once you called him and forgot like the time zone there and it was like early in the morning that triggered him because he hates getting phone calls like early in the morning because of what would happen in the past. Uh, we just you, kept triggering him with the Ribera shirt and the phone calls and Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, there's so much tragedy that it's hard to avoid the signs. One thing that I remember from the episode and thinking about in the moment when talking to him about, you know, grief and how does he relax? How does he deal with the weight of the, um, of the world, you know, and everything he's been through and it was just like, whoa, dude, like his, his idea of it is to, you know, grab a, grab some scuba gear. Okay. Go to the bottom of a body of water, turn off the light, you know, at night and just float there, you know? And I mean, to me, that would be an, an anxiety nightmare. 
you know, <laughs> like that would be a freak show for me. But that's where he finds his solace is in is, is something like that, you know, and that just puts so much in perspective about, you know, what he's been through um, versus what, you know, us regulars have been through. Guys talked earlier about how he came in, you know, to some degree defensive. This is a guy who has heard all of the narratives about why things ended up the way it did for his family. And there are certain things he just won't grant that people might say about, well, you know, the way his father lorded over them or, uh, you know, the culpability of other people in his life and uh, mom versus dad and drugs and all the rest. And one of the things that he came prepared to say, it seemed to me, at least in this interview, was that Fritz von Erich forced and pressured his children to become pro wrestlers when they didn't really want to be is, is a a specious notion to him, particularly because it's often said about Mike Von Erich, who really, you know, had hardly any time in the business before he suffered a shoulder injury that caused um, a surgery that went horribly wrong and caused an infection. He suffered from toxic shock syndrome and nearly died still somehow was brought back and put into the ring and then ultimately killed himself. But there's this notion that that was, and it's depicted in Iron Claw very strongly. I would love to know what Kevin thought about it, that, you know, that pressure was there, that Mike would have rather been a rock and roll guitarist, you know, and just was beginning to find his interests, but had felt like he had to be a wrestler. Um, Kevin doesn't like that. He also doesn't like the suggestion that Chris Von Erich, the youngest of the Von Erichs, who is totally not mentioned at all in the film and not depicted at all, uh, also was forced to be uh, a pro wrestler and didn't want to be. In fact, he says if anybody among the Von Erich boys was was forced to be a wrestler, you'd be surprised uh, who it was. Nobody wants to believe this. People want to think that Mike didn't want to be a wrestler, which he did. Chris didn't want to be a wrestler, which he did. Dad pushed us, which he didn't. But I didn't want to be a wrestler. I wanted to be a pro football player, and I wrecked my knee. I had a bad knee injury, but I was one of those gung-ho kind of nut guys that wanted to come back faster than anybody ever did, hurt the other one by overcompensating and getting an imbalance of the muscle. And knee injury, knee injury, knee injury. I had to wrestle. And so at first, if you see me on early matches, I had boots and long trunks with those Lenox Hill braces underneath with all that metal, and you know, it kept them from rotating. But you get a fear in your mind that it's going to go again any minute. You know, it's a bad feeling. It goes off like firecrackers when it's a bad one. That's such a, such a fascinating perspective, JP. I mean, you know, Zach Efron is not portrayed as the guy that doesn't want to be a wrestler. He's almost just like floating through life. But to hear Kevin tell it, like, that is just the wrong uh, way to read the way, the way Fritz was. I'm, I'm not sure how to feel about it, but that's, that's what he's saying. I don't know. I mean, my, my initial instinct is that he's, you know, kind of trying to protect the legacy of his dad, which I understand. I mean, but there's, I don't know. There's, there's, we saw Mike on the dais at a press conference at the hospital when he looked like a skeleton. He looked like death warmed over. He looked like he was minutes from dying. And the whole press conference is about plugging the next event that they're going to do at the cotton bowl. And Mike saying, I'm going to be at that cotton bowl show. And he can't even talk. He can't even talk. His eyes are sunken and like almost black. I mean, I remember I was sitting watching the movie waiting for them to depict this, but they didn't. Well, here's the here's the theme, right? I mean, for me, that was the whole experience of watching the movie was, you know, okay, waiting for them to do this part. And then they didn't, you know, and and it's it's yeah, and I'll shut up about this. But it was kind of like, you know, this idea of like here. I mean, something that was evident to us in capturing the story, it's like and trying for us to jam it into 44 minutes was like there's so many cinematic film worthy 
scenes in, in this unbelievably dramatic story. You know, Kevin Von Erich um, robbing a gun store, you know, for crying out loud, or just these other moments that he's been through. What you just said, like, you know, taking out Sharpies and saying, hi, David, you know, on the on the turnbuckle, you know, for when the brother comes through the territory. Or Fritz telling mo- Kevin, if you had the guts, you'd have killed yourself, too. Oh, yeah. Pointing the gun at him. Like all these unbelievably poignant, suitable for a, for for awards, <laughs> you know, winning award winning filmmaking. And it's just to see those opportunities being missed one scene after the other in favor of, I don't know, in favor of, I don't know, you know? I was going to say, and and not only that, I mean, I I don't want to spend the whole thing, you know, harping on the movie, but the other thing too is that- I do. (laughs) (laughs) That's becoming clear. (laughs) You know, the, the deaths don't just revolve around- like the brothers too, because then you get to take in the the other wrestlers who died during this 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 peak era for world class between you know like Gino Hernandez and stuff, but and and, and there's there's just this there's so much there that you really there's can't. so much that's unsustainable about what's happening here, you know? Yeah, and the 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 mic thing I. I, 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 I can't doubt that he, that there, there was a part of every one of the brothers who wanted to be a wrestler because your dad's doing it. And so there's probably a time when that happens, but when you see his face, I mean, we stopped the episode early because I couldn't handle it. Like we've never done that before. Never done it. Never. We, we never have done it before. We never have done it since. And I don't care if, if you're, if, if, if he wanted to be a wrestler or not. He had no business being at a press conference. He had no business going to a show, to a wrestling show. Like that kid needed to just be resting and be taken care of and being loved and whatever and not put out on, on TV and not put out. Like that's just, that's where my issue comes in with all, with all this is that it wasn't taken care of. It didn't seem like he was taken care of. I guess where the distinction is, is, you know, and I take Kevin's point, you know, he didn't pressure Mike or Chris to be wrestlers, but I think the point is he should have discouraged it because these were boys who weren't cut out for it. They just weren't. And everyone knew it. I would imagine like just in the chaos of those years, you know, and with things that are linked, you know, everything's linked to money and to pressure and to, uh, you know, I'm sure there is some outside pressure you know, in terms of the competitive nature of professional wrestling and the other territories and Vince McMahon and, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah, because he's clo- Vince is closing in on Dallas at the, that don't sleep on that fact. Right. Uh, and, and they have the Booker leaves and starts Wild West Wrestling. The Freebirds go over to UWF and Bill Watts is at war. It's- so I think it's like it's so easy to, you know, create a very black and white sort of judgment on the family. And I think Kevin's sensitive to that, where it's like it's so easy to create a very, you know, okay, this is a, this is bad. This was good. But I think that that family was enraptured in a tornado of, um, chaos of just everything that was happening left and right and left and right and move flying at the seat of their pants. And I think maybe one of the reasons that Kevin is so defensive over, over his dad is because it isn't so simple, clear cut, good and bad. It's like, there's probably so many instances of, you know, uh, looking up to the man and, you know, good that has come from Fritz, 
but then there's also bad. It's a complicated portrait and it's not one or the other. And so I think he's always trying to balance out the light, you know, with the darkness kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And the love he has for his father sort of, you know, being put through the filter of everyone saying my dad did this and that doesn't ring true with me. That's not how I experienced my dad. I'm not going to just stand by and let people characterize what my dad uh, thought and was motivated to do and not being able to separate that from what his dad ought to have done. And, 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 you know, sort of suggesting the ways this might have been mitigated somehow, as opposed to uh, claiming to have some, uh, some omniscience about what, what Fritz was at mentally. I keep bringing up the film, uh, I'm not sure. I can't oh, can we talk about him, the movie tomorrow? <laughs> I keep bringing up the film because I assume it's a touchstone for people that may have seen it and might be listening to this podcast, and this might be their entree into the story. I, I know there was a lot of that, at least in the weeks it had first come out. And um, and so episodes like this from Dark Side of the Ring become a, sort of a resource to dig a bit deeper, and hopefully this podcast as well. And, and one of the things that uh, I think Kevin put a very fine point on and explained very clearly as you guys sort of, you know, coached him through uh, getting clarity on this point is the loss of his brother Kerry's foot in a motorcycle accident. Oh, yeah. um, there's a moment in the film where it just goes black and you assume he hit something and then all of a sudden he's got this stub, almost like a Captain Hook looking leg, uh, having totally lost everything below the knee. Um, and as Kevin described to you guys, you know, that's that's not exactly uh, what happened. Um, it's still miraculous that Kerry Von Erich was able to recover from what happened to his foot and still wrestle for years and years in a way that people didn't really necessarily notice or be able to detect that he was disfigured in that way but it was great that you guys got kevin to really break down you know what actually happened it was a secret for years they tried to hide it uh but now kevin willing to sort of uh detail what happened to his brother carrie's foot in this accident it was in in argyle we have a lot of friends with friend there's a cop down there and he's driving his car and so carrie was going to pass the police car on uh the right you know and uh and it, it I, I think he was going to gun it or something. Or he's going to pass him on the right, yeah. And the guy had to change lanes, didn't see Kerry. Kerry tried to jump over the car and got his caught, foot caught under the light the light on the rack, you know, and just tore the end of his foot off. And uh, it was a terrible injury. And they had, to, they had to amputate the tip of his foot. It took uh, 20 hours, I think, of microsurgery to get it oh. reattached. And... Uh, so he was like, uh, after all of that, they, they're given. He had a drug problem already, and they're giving him all of these drugs. And I, it had to have some kind of effect because Kerry was not Kerry talking out of his head in that hospital. It was terrible. We didn't know what the hell was going on. I've never seen Kerry act like that. I've, I've been trying to like uh, visualize like what the prosthetic like looked like. Like how was he able to still wrestle? Well, it's. Uh, it's weird. What you've got to do to make it fit is let your calf atrophy. Your cat is your calf has got to atrophy down to like a, a oh. bone. Not to carry that was an ugly fight. Oh you know, he could not make get a foot until his foot did that. So he had to lay up in bed for carry. That was hard. But uh, he had a foot all the way to here. It's just that from the ankle on out to the toes was cut off. So, uh, but the prosthetic looked like a boot and it extended on he'd uh it was just uh awkward and i'm sure it hurt too because he'd have ghost pains where he'd think that his toes hurt you know they weren't he didn't have toes you know 
ghost pains. I had never heard of such a thing. Jason, you must be listening to Kevin tell this, you know, and detail this and Evan getting those details. And you got to be thinking, how do we, you know, depict this? How do we, how do we represent this to the audience? Yeah, gosh, it's, it's still so hard to hear him talk about that. Um, and to like, you know, to think that they kept it a secret, you know, for so long until his death, I think is when it, it actually, it came out to the public. Um, but yeah, like the idea of that, they like, they kept it a secret because again, you know, they're trying to protect that, you know, the fantasy world of like the Von Erics and then being strong and not having any weaknesses. And there's like, you see, there's like this really tragic promo that Carrie cuts after where he says that his leg is all good. It's like they were able to fix it and um, he was going to be able to move on with his wrestling career. And you could just now knowing what he was going through and you watch that promo, it's uh, it's really heartbreaking because you can see it like in his eyes and how disappointed he is. And um, and I just can't imagine like not, like had they had leaned into it and had him, you know, um, embrace it. It would have put him over big time. Like I think uh, people would have been really inspired by that story. Yeah, and it's it's another it's another you know theme, um, tragic theme here in the in the story uh, of that sort of when you suppress that and you're not and you're unable to open up about it and you're unable to you know you have to hide something you know it's it's another source of shame right that is that is going unprocessed in the family. Um, and you know, unprocessed shame is probably leads to like massive depression. And of course, and I'm not saying this is like, you know, solving the Von Erich tragedy or anything, but it's like when one family member does wind up taking their life, something we definitely learned from the, doing the Graham family episode in season four is just sort of the idea of when one family member does take their own life, it kind of makes it a viable option for others, you know, in the, in the family, in, in, in that nuclear family. And so, um, that's a very dangerous cocktail of um, where you're having to suppress something like that. Um, and, and I can only imagine how humiliating that was for him. And obviously you, you know, we've all heard the story um, about when he's wrestling, you know, in, for the AWA in Las Vegas at a TV taping and he's wrestling against Colonel De Beers and the boys that heard, you know, the rumors that he may not have a foot, but they weren't sure. And of course, halfway through the match, he, you know, rips off Carrie's boot to expose him. And it's like, man, you can only imagine the emotions of, you know, that would go through that where as if, if it wasn't something that he had to hide, you know, it wouldn't have been an issue at all. And and the fact that he had to wear boots into the shower, you know, when he's showering in the locker room. That's what got people questioning it. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. Go. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's such a fascinating part of the story. And, and you think about the Adonis that was Kerry Von Erich. I mean, this guy was a great god in terms of his sculpted body. And to have to sit there and like conscientiously let your calf reduce to a skin and bone so you can fit it into this prosthetic is, is a challenge that I think is not always appreciated about what Kerry had to deal with. You know, and Ke- I think Kevin, he explained it beautifully there upon your, your, your inquiry, you know, like, this is what had to happen. And all of a sudden this mystery of like how he did this, I can see it all of a sudden for the first time, you know, kind of what, what was under that boot and what uh, Gary uh, had to deal with. Well, at the very beginning of the episode, we played some sound of Kevin talking about, um, you know, a bit of a divergence between his father Fritz and his mother Doris in terms of how to deal with bullies. Uh, Kevin, you know, remembering that um, perhaps his mother was encouraging a softer touch or she could tell something was wrong 
and she was looking to you know counsel Kevin on that front, but not necessarily the one to proffer the solution of you got to take it to the kid. That that was that was what uh, Kevin assigned uh, to Fritz in terms of where he got that from. Now, as the tragedies unfold, we know the strain on on the relationship between Fritz and Doris is unimaginable, right? We just can only imagine the kind of thoughts spoken and unspoken between the two as child after child dies untimely deaths. And by the time, to hear Kevin put it um, here, uh, that that Chris and Mike, the two youngest sons, were coming up and becoming professional wrestlers, uh, this is an insight I'm not sure he's talked about before that I've seen depicted before. There is a difference now, a stark difference developing that takes takes it all the way to, you know, ultimately Fritz and Doris's divorce. Uh, Maura Tierney um, depicts this in, in, in The Iron Claw, you know, where Fritz is saying you know, I'm going to back off. Like the way I disciplined Kevin, the way I disciplined David, the way I disciplined Carrie, um, Doris is not going to allow that same mode of parenting to prevail on Mike and Chris. Um, And Kevin is uneasy about that, but tough to argue when you've seen what's happened under the old, let's say, regime. But I just found this particularly heartbreaking, the way he describes the attempt to, to switch it up in terms of how they're raising the boys and still uh, Mike and Chris kill themselves. You know, the thing was with mom and dad was that uh, the first one was that she didn't want dad correcting Mike and Chris like he did me, Dave and Carrie, and uh, wanted to leave dad. And uh, they changed, and dad didn't uh, touch Mike or Chris. Left him. I mean, not touch him. He didn't hit us. He you know, he did, you know, whack us with a belt sometimes, but not really when we grew up. It was just that he did, uh, um, but Mike was really raised by me, Dave, and Carrie. We taught Mike the difference in right and wrong because Mom had eliminated Dad. It was it was a shame. She had, and Dad, we knew Dad was right. Dad was right. We deserved what we got. <laughs> and Dad knew it, too. Mom was so sure that they needed more gentle hand. More gentle hand, the wording there. It sure didn't work out. It was a rift in the family. It, Mike and Chris, uh, my mother and Chris would uh, say things that uh, I wouldn't believe they would say to my father. But Carrie and I heard that, but we couldn't believe it. You know, We wanted to correct that, but it was something Mom and Chris had worked out. So Doris apparently coming forward with a different way of parenting, and that didn't work either. Just tough, tough all around, impossible to to figure out, uh, you know, where the adjustments would have made a difference. But I guess we're left with closing thoughts from the panel. I mean, uh, Jason and Evan, you guys sat across from the man. You, you've been brought back to that scene here through these sound clips. Well, what should we take away from all of this? Well, just a quick comment on that last clip real, real fast. It's like, that's another pressure, you know? of a sibling being given the responsibility to sort of parent their own sibling, you know, is something that I don't think a kid should have the, that pressure of doing. Um, and, and, and that's equally tough and, and probably causes, and I don't want to, I, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it's like probably also causes further rebellion, right? Maybe because, you know, that's one thing that our doc doesn't really capture that much is, is sort of the, 
you know, extracurricular activities of some of the Von Erichs <laughs> and, and how they did rebel against sort oh, yeah. of when he says we deserved it. I mean, he's talking about yeah. not, not showing up for dates, being high on Placidils, getting bombed every night, not being reliable, not showing up. Exactly. So, you know, that, that, that's of course, again, probably a recipe to get that result as well too. And I know too, that, um, Fritz saw himself a lot in David and David had a lot of anger issues as well, too. And Kevin talked about how, like, he was the hardest probably on David um, because he wanted to, like, not ha- like he didn't want David to go down similar roads that that uh, Fritz himself did. Yeah. And in fact, there was a moment where David fled the coop and went down to Florida and uh, sought to become a heel um, and the Florida wrestling circuit. And eventually Kevin goes down there and follows his brother and and gets him to come back back home, so to speak, because there was some, there was some fissure between Fritz and David about the direction his career was taking. But David amongst all the Von Erich brothers was seen as the one that had like the real fundamental skills in the traditional mold of a world heavyweight pro wrestling champion. He was the one that's, you know, he had the microphone skills. He had that sort of like, you know, technician, uh, appearance and veneer. He wasn't just like a sculpted body, not, not to put down Kevin or Kerry cause they were actually tremendous athletes in the Roman guard, but he was six, um, eight too. He was huge. And he he also, uh, I think, was sort of finding his own identity through his heel turn. You know, he was really kind of finding, okay, well, maybe this, you know, baby face son of the promoter thing only has so much, you know, time on it. And where I think he went to Florida and he really sort of found that, whoa, you know, um, you know, he really is kind of an he can be a natural heel, too. And uh, I think I think people saw the versatility in him. And before we move off, Jason, I just got to ask you, I mean, because I took from this episode and we talked about it in, on, um, on, on our Lamentable Tragedy podcast series on this whole thing as well. You know, just it, it's so satisfying to picture Kevin going to this island and just, you know, cutting, cutting ties with it all and all the great ways you guys have described him, you know, being sort of one with nature and how far away that was from the Denton County uh, ranch, you know, that he grew up on, but now they're back. And I wonder like, if you feel like that's kind of corrupted that sweet memory of Kevin, you know, seeking the, uh, the rainforest and leaving it all behind. I haven't actually talked to him. I don't think since he, he's moved back to Dallas, but I do remember it being so powerful being on his property and going into the woods with him and, um, and him talking about how like nature like has healed him. And it like, after, you know, us being obsessed with the story and it being so tragic and to like kind of end off our journey with him and seeing him living like a peaceful existence and being happy. Um, and surrounded by family too. Yeah. All around him and his grandchildren, his grandchildren were coming up and hugging him while doing the interview. And gosh, it was like a therapeutic like moment. And it was, it was like, uh, it's almost like we went to go visit like Luke Skywalker yes. or something like he, like, I remember him talking too, which I, I, I think was really important is like how he had this like spiritual connection to his brothers that it was almost kind of like the force that he could, like they could read each other's minds. They could anticipate things that were going on. And like, and I found that like so emotional. Um, I will say I did like there was one moment in Iron Claw, probably the moment I, re- I liked the most was like, um, I think it's I think it's after Mike dies. There's like this moment where it's like zooming in on each of the brothers and it's like dissolving between them and they're all going through their struggles. And I thought that was kind of like representative 
of of that kind of idea a little bit um um but yeah that that was something i remember like taking away uh taking from it so much one thing i'll add to i don't know this might be super dorky and i'll cut it out if it really is but um last parting thing i remember about the trip was of course you know kevin gave us some weed uh, on his way out, out the door uh yeah this won't be cut out <laughs> And, uh, you know, I mean, the guy's the guy's in pain, you know, and he needs, you know, hey, this is much better than what most of the other wrestlers are doing to curtail their chronic pain. And I'm just like, you know, well, this is like growing on volcanic rock, you know, and I'm not like some weed guy or anything. But um, when we went back to where we were staying, it was like this magical, literally magical cosmic moment where I almost was like feeling the, like the waves and the connection to the universe, you know, where it's like. We were we had a pool that was adjacent to where we were staying and we smoked a little Von Eric weed and it was like this just like it was the most like calming, like universe restoring high that I had had because it was the end of this big epic trip and we knew we got all the footage we needed. But it was all this also this like warm comfort of like Kevin's going to be OK and like the Von Erics are going to be OK and like and then it started raining and it's like that beautiful moment where it's like you know, warm outside, but then it's like raining, like in the dark, like in a pool and you're like stoned and like, <laughs> it, it was, it was great. I'm not, I'm not trying to hypnotize you guys, but it was, it was great. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah. It was a cool moment. <laughs> yeah. It's not just interviewing the guy. You, you really, uh, you know, I hadn't seen it. I mean, you know, you gotta think the other t- documentaries like the heroes of world class that was done, uh, the WWE's documentary triumph and tragedy. These guys are just sitting in interviews, you know, contexts. You don't get a sense of place. I'm not even sure Kevin lived in Kauai at the time those pieces were put together. This was the first time that everyone could see that he was surrounding himself with things that brought him comfort and help perhaps helped us understand how he could, you know, turn to uh, sources of comfort when, when, when this stuff comes back up. So uh, JP, any closing thoughts here uh, on, uh, on Kevin Von Erich? Well, first I do want to say my favorite part of the Iron Claw is actually the re-edit of the, uh, uh, of the wedding reception dance segment that one of our listeners, Chroma Slam, did where he in- inserted uh, uh, the Jive Soul Bro entrance theme by, of Slick and Akeem. As they're doing their uh, dance. It's the, on Twitter. Wedding, it, is, yeah. it is, without a doubt, the fucking funniest thing I've ever seen. And it works perfectly. But uh, it's, it's such a, I mean, the whole, the whole saga is, is, is complex. It's dirty. It's rough. And honestly, the, any, any shed of light that Kevin can, can insert is really it's one step closer to understanding or at least one step closer to creating the picture of, of what it was like to go through it all. And I certainly have my opinions on, on the whole story based on what we've done and what I've seen and read, but um, listening to him tell, you know, tell stories is it, it adds a whole, a whole another dimension to the whole thing. And, and one thing too, I, 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 I don't want to forget is like, he has such tremendous love for his family. And it was like really important, you know, to talk about Chris, you know, who was not included in the film. And um, it's like the story of the Von Erics is continuing. It's like, I feel like there could be another movie down the road that shows life imitating art where like Chris, like he's so desired to want to be a wrestler and not to be forgotten. 
And the travesty of that movie is that it does forget him. He's not included. And I know that would be something that uh, would weigh heavy on Kevin. Um, and so I, I'm not sure, like, I, I imagine that's possibly part of why the filmmakers didn't reach out to him, like when they were developing the movie. Um, but uh, yeah, Chris, like, you know, we were super into Chris. Like we thought big Chris, Chris fans. Was, yeah. We were big Chris fans. Um, and so, yeah. Want to give some love to Chris. Yeah, totally. And one last ding from Evan on the movie um, is uh, what Jason's saying about the Chris Von Eric thing is what I was trying to, which I poorly articulated earlier about when you, when you do um, consolidate, you know, part of the story like that, when you take out like a Chris Von Eric and just because it makes, you know, the movie less tragic, well, then it's simplifying and reducing the movie. Like I said, back to fiction, it's, it's not, you know, what this story is, which is, you know, it's, 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 it's real life. It really happened. And, you know, that one extra tragedy that that family endured is kind of almost the thing that puts it out into, you know, it puts it out into almost the unfathomable and, but that is what the family endured. And so it just seems to me, it's like, you know, and look, there's, look, there's so many biopics that get made every year. Like, you know, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure the queen fans are really up in arms about Bohemian Rhapsody you know, or whatever, <laughs> and you know, all that stuff. So take what I say with a grain of salt. Cause you know, we are obviously very much closer to it than anybody else, but yeah, you know, but there is, there is some truth in that. And it's kind of like, okay, you went all this way, but come on guys. So that's my final word for all the uh, fictionalization that might go on. It's uh Certainly Kevin's truth was depicted on the Dark Side of the Ring episode, looking at the Von Erich family tragedy, and, and on this episode of Dark Side of the Ring Unheard, uh, a little extra garnishment uh, on that plate, so to speak, and some of the asides from Kevin's uh, testimony, I guess you could say, that, that might help us further understand his truth on this whole thing. So that's going to do it for us. Um, we have much more to dig into, much more to bring to the surface for you here on Dark Side of the Ring Unheard. We do hope you're enjoying uh, this treatment of the DSOTR archives. Uh, So for us, it's back to the vault, and we'll see you next time on Unheard.